Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, on page 1113. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heavens and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands, if he, he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that, he should, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus a member of the Areopagus, also a, man, a, a woman named Damarius, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, let's pray now, though, as we come to this uh, wonderful section of Acts. Father God, please would you help us now to 
listen hard and to hear what you're saying and what this means as we reflect on our own lives now and our world around us and how especially the good news about Jesus speaks into our lives today and our culture. Please give us confidence as we seek to live for you in our world today. Please help us to see and follow Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, what can the good news about Jesus have to say to a culture that is basically convinced Christianity has had its day? This uh, reading that we've just heard from chapter 17 is Luke's answer to the equivalent question for the first century. So the context is slightly different between then and now. So if you think about it, back then it's a pre-Christian world, as it were. Uh, now we could describe this as a post-Christian world, certainly in this country. Um, well, that's how a lot of people would like to see it. In, in a pre-Christian world, people have literally never heard of Jesus. So you can see that in verse 18 as... as um, uh, Paul is going into the marketplace and he's speaking and they're going, what is this babbler going on about as he speaks about Jesus? Is he, is he giving us another God to add to our collection? And it seems that the talk of resurrection confuses them too. The word anastasis, which means resurrection, would probably sound to them like another God, a female God. It would sound like the sort of wife of this mysterious God, Jesus. So they're just really confused. They've never heard the name Jesus before. In a post-Christian world today, well, there is still confusion about Jesus, but people are much more likely to have heard of him, even if they've got very different ideas about who he is and that kind of thing. Or maybe they just know his name as a swear word, or maybe as a South American football player, or, or whatever it is. But in, in other respects, this is like the first century. And we're going to see how that is. We're going to see how this, this section of Luke's book, the Acts of the Apostles, gives us confidence to speak about Jesus into the world. Into a world that, that doesn't know him, doesn't want to know him, and often thinks Christianity is at best old-fashioned and at worst dangerous. So put it this way, when you think of friends who are not Christians... Unless they're very unusual, they're probably not coming to you saying, I want to know how to become a Christian. If that happens, then fantastic. It does happen occasionally. Sometimes people literally walk into church like this for the first time because that is exactly what they're thinking. So it does happen. But up to this point in Acts, we have seen the good news about Jesus, that the gospel go to the Jews, and we've seen their objections and their responses and how the apostles addressed those We've then seen the good news go to Gentiles. And, and what we've seen so far is maybe what you might call kind of low-hanging fruit. So we've seen, it's the, we've seen the sort of type of person who was just waiting for everything to fall into place. And maybe today, I don't know, particularly in our world, maybe in London, you know, that might be like 1% of the people who are around us. But for the other 99% or whatever it is who aren't like that, well, think about this. What are their passions and interests? What are they living for? Are they living for 
leisure, money and wealth and success. So they, they, they have a desire to do some good for others, to, to serve others even, to make a difference in the world. Are they concerned about the environment, about war and conflict and the future of humanity? What principles guide them when they have to make decisions? How do they cope when life gets tough? What keeps them going? What do they think a good life is? Well, Luke has recorded this encounter between Paul and the Athenian philosophers to help us begin to think about how the good news about Jesus, the gospel, speaks to people with a very different outlook on the world. So let's get into what happens when the gospel meets non-Christian culture. And we start firstly with the motivation, verses 16 to 21, the motivation. So this is the motivation for Paul as he speaks to them. Look at the context Paul finds himself in, one where there are lots of idols, verse 16, can you see that? In other words, kind of visible statues for people to worship, not completely unlike what you'll find still today in some Asian cultures maybe with shrines for different ancestral gods or whatever. Athens was full of that kind of thing, a place of idols, but then also a place of isms. So as he's done elsewhere, he goes to the synagogue first of all, but then also to the marketplace, where he's preaching about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And we know that because of the response in verse 18. Can you see that? He gets into some debate with some Epicureans, and some Stoics. So here are their isms, Epicureanism, Stoicism. These guys are what you might call the thought leaders of the culture. Okay? So there's a sense in which they were maybe kind of two sides of a culture war. Not the same thing, you know, when we talk about culture wars today, it's probably something different, but they still had different perspectives on life and what, a, what, what sort of good life is. And you can do a lot of reading about Epicureans and Stoics and come, you know, come up with all kinds of things that they believe. But I think it boils down to this, okay? It basically boils down to two attitudes to the question, should I have another slice of cake? Okay, what's your answer to should I have another slice of cake? Epicureans are basically, yes, you should have another slice of cake because life is for living. And Stoics are... No, don't have another slice of cake because it's bad for your health. Okay, that's basically it. And there's, there's maybe a bit more to it than that. But <laughs> those worldviews, if you think about it, are, are still well and truly alive today, aren't they? And kind of, you know, Epicureanism isn't quite hedonism, but it's, that's, it's heading in that sort of direction of just live for the moment, do whatever um, pleasure you want that makes you happy. You've got that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you've got kind of my body is a temple um, and uh, just sort of doing everything you possibly can to, um, to look after your, yourself and your health and all that kind of thing. And then sometimes you get bits in between, you know, people doing both of those things. But here, here is Luke then, with this description, bringing together both things. He's got the religion of the masses with the idols and the idol worship with the marketplace, and then he's got the philosophy in the academy. Okay, and he's got both of those things going on, the idols and the isms. And, and we won't understand culture unless we understand the interplay between the two, and we can still see that today. So, so people aren't worshipping physical statues most of the time, in the UK at least. 
But our culture has its own idols still that we, we often talk about, don't we? We, we? we talk about idols of wealth and prosperity and sex and relationships and many other things besides. But behind the idols are the isms. Secularism, individualism, humanism, feminism, postmodernism, whatever ism it is, there'll be, there's tons of them. And whatever ism you choose, there will be thinkers deeply invested in those isms. Whether they are literally kind of professors in a university somewhere, or just the kind of slightly more popular level writers that you get in the, in the media of various different, in the magazines, kind of promulgating these views of the world, these isms. And the isms affect the idols, and the idols affect the isms. They're deeply connected. So, you know, the, the academic philosophers are over here talking about individualism, and the end result is a culture obsessed with social media and image. And, and, and it's probably, it goes the other way as well, because the culture is obsessed with these things, the academics get obsessed with these things too. So, so do you see the point? Here is Paul in a world that has lots of similarities to our own, lots of confusion, lots of different perspectives on what a good life is. And can you see his reaction then? How does he, as a, as a Christian, coming into that environment in Athens, what is his reaction to what he sees? Can you see this in verse 16? He says he was, Luke says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And we need to understand what that distress means because it's common today for some Christians to kind of react with disgust and distress at the world around us, isn't it? So to be, have you heard this term, disgusted of Tunbridge Wells? Have you heard that term? So it's, it's uh, if you haven't heard it before, it's a way of referring to people. Tunbridge Wells is a nice middle-class town in Kent, okay? And there was a time when people, you know, people were writing into newspapers and it became this sort of cliched thing of disgusted of Tunbridge Wells would write into the newspaper to say how outraged they were about the latest moral kind of um, slip or degradation they could see in the culture around them. Disgusted. Absolutely disgusted. And, and you can kind of, you know, sometimes that is what Christians are thought to be like, isn't it? So we kind of look at the world around us and we go, oh, it's terrible, it's dreadful, disgusting, it's evil. And that is all we have to say. But we need to look and see, is that the kind of response Paul has got here? Well, we can see from what Paul says later that his response is not just to condemn. It's a lot more positive than that. So what's this distress about in verse 16? It's, it's, it's not just a sort of moral outrage, but it is a distress at seeing people worship things that are not the one true God who gives life in Jesus Christ. It's a concern in the end for God's glory and not his own, not anyone else's. It's a, it's a distress that it is God's glory that is being denied and sidelined in what the Athenians are doing. And that is Paul's motivation for what he then goes on to say and do. So when it comes to talking about Jesus or, or, or evangelism, as we often call it, it's worth asking what our motivation is. What is our motivation to speak to others about Jesus? We might say, well, there's, there's a number of different reasons we might speak about Jesus. There is, there is Jesus' command. So he commands us, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, so that's true, and it's a good reason to do evangelism. 
But the problem is just being sort of known that you've been told to go and tell other people about Jesus, it's probably only going to get you so far. Because we'll do it until it's difficult, which it probably will be quite quickly. Okay, so how are we going to get a bit further? Well, then people might say, well, you need more than command, you need compassion. That might get us a bit further. Compassion for the person who doesn't know Jesus. Out of love and compassion for them, we want, them to, share the good, we want to share the good news about Jesus. You know, we often put it in terms of like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's a compassionate thing to do. And that is also true and right. But it only actually works, if you think about it, when the other person wants to listen. What about when they say, no, this is too costly for me. I don't want to follow Jesus. And compassion in the end by itself will just make us say, well, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. That wouldn't be a very compassionate thing to do. I'll just leave you as you are then. And if we're honest, that can stop us from trying, if that is our main motivation, because we fear, well, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. And, and I want to be compassionate to them. So I just sort of back off a bit and don't say anything. But can you see, Paul's motivation here is, is neither of those things primarily, although he, I'm sure he'd agree with command and compassion as good reasons to speak to others. But his motivation goes back to, first of all, the glory of Jesus Christ. That is what's making him speak. When he sees people worshipping gods that are not the one true God who made us. That is what makes us go, no, this is awful. This cannot continue. Because God has said he's the one who deserves all the glory. And God has said Jesus Christ must get the honour. Because he died and rose from the dead. And one day every knee will bow and acknowledge that he's Lord of all. The 19th century missionary Henry Martin was a, a missionary to what is now Iran. And he, and he said... I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonoured. That's what motivated him to leave behind all the comforts of life in this country and to head overseas on a journey that was way more dangerous than it is even today to do the same kind of thing. That is what motivated Henry Martin is what motivated Paul, and it meant that Paul was willing to speak about Jesus, even when it was difficult, even when it cost him, even when it looked like people weren't that interested, it would be easier to stay quiet. That's his motivation. So that's the first thing to get in place as we look at these verses, and to ask ourselves, what motivates us? Do we, do we, do we share that distress at realising it's, 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 it's a terrible thing when, when God is not getting the glory he deserves? Well, we move then to the message. The message. Paul gets talking to these philosophers and they, uh, they, they either, it's not quite clear, they either kind of cordially invite him or, or possibly they drag him. It's not quite clear if you look at how it's described. But he ends up at the Areopagus, Mars Hill. That's what that is. It's a cross between a public court and a debating chamber in that city and he's asked to explain what he's saying about Jesus and the resurrection so this is basically where the philosophers hang out and debate okay now there's a book called unplugged by Dan Strange where he analyzes Paul's message here with these four E's you can see that on the on the on the handout if you look we've got these listed and we've got them on the screen as well 
that is just a helpful way of seeing what Paul is doing in this message. So look at what Paul does as he speaks to them. First, he enters their cultural context. Can you see this verse 23? As I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, he says. Now can you see from the outset, Paul is making it clear that he's doing more than just dismissing them as wicked pagans. He's seeking to understand them. He's putting their glasses on and looking through their lenses. He's trying their shoes on and walking a mile with them. He's saying, what does it mean to be Athenian? And it's those questions that we started with. What are you living for? What makes you tick? What do you think is right and wrong? What do you do when you suffer? What do you think about death? Can you see, this is the first important step in speaking to others about Jesus. It's not first of all about preaching to them. It's it's first about listening and understanding. You see, we can be so keen and often anxious to defend Christianity in a hostile world that it kind of puts us in transmit mode. Or, or it make, at least makes us think we ought to be always in transmit mode and then we feel guilty about the fact that we don't know what to say. So, you know, we kind of see a vague opportunity and it's like, boom, you know, we're speaking about what Christians believe and why it's important. Transmit mode. But actually, if we want to be an evangelist like Paul, Luke is saying, first of all, stop speaking and start listening. Can you see what he's doing? So actually, it's quite common for people to say that, oh, you know, I I never speak about spiritual things with my friends. The, 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 The topic never comes up, people say. You know, my friends never ask me any questions at all. They know I go to church, but they never, ever, ever ask me anything about it at all. We'll talk about everything else, but they never want to know anything. But can you see from the way that Paul is doing things here is is Paul would be saying, well, stop, stop just sort of looking for opportunities to speak and start listening to what they're saying, listening to what they're saying about their own lives. And, And with that, then asking questions that start to get beneath the surface of what they think and what they believe and what, they, what makes them tick, what are they living for. Okay, so that is the first thing, to enter into the world that they're living in. Secondly, then, he, he explores. I see that in every way you are very religious, he says. So he's concluding things from his observations. So he says, you people, you pride yourselves on how religious you are. And what he's doing here as he explores is he's not just attacking. He's drawing out the positives, first of all, in what he finds in what people believe. And the reason he can do that is because idols are almost always good things in themselves, but they've been twisted and turned into ultimate things, and that makes them bad things. So when someone worships wealth, well, as, you know, as we often point out, it's not that wealth in itself is bad. You know, it's a blessing. It's a good thing. But it's a terrible God to live for and worship and make your one thing that you are living for in your life. A terrible thing. It will kill you. It will destroy you if you make that your idol. But the, but the wealth itself is, is, is a, a good thing. It's the, same with, it's the same with sex, it's the same with power, it's the same with many of these things. These are things that have been created by God and yet God's creatures take the thing that God has made and treat it as the ultimate thing and they, and they forget to say that this has been given to us as a gift by God and they worship it as an idol. 
So that's why he can therefore see some positives nevertheless before pointing out where this is destroying them. So he's exploring. So what, with what Paul is saying here today, we might actually say the opposite with many people from what he says here, if you think about it. So not that I see you, you are very religious, but it might, you know, it might be people of London. I see that in every way you think you're very irreligious. That's what people would like to say. Isn't it? I'm not religious, not me. You know, that's how we, that our culture would often describe ourselves. You, you, know, you pride yourselves, we would say, on your secular value system. You see no need for faith, your so-called superstition. You are enlightened, you're forward-thinking, you're scientifically-minded people who have no time for fairy stories or sermons about Jesus. But then we might say, maybe you need to stop and see how Christian your worldview actually is. This equality that you celebrate and you take for granted, do you realise how Christian that is? How the West celebrates equality, not because of the Greeks and Romans. You know, they, they didn't believe in equality at all. They owned slaves, they left their babies on the hillside to die. Equality was a completely foreign concept to them. But because Christianity has dominated the West for the last 2,000 years, we've ended up in a situation where our culture takes equality for granted. Just thinks it's an obvious thing. Well, it's because of the history that's gone behind it. And so do you see, as we, as we sort of get into, as we explore with people what they celebrate, what they think is good, we're saying, look, yeah, equality is brilliant. It's a fantastic thing. But let's try and see where it comes from. You know, you're kind of turning it into an idol and it can be misused and, and, and made to say things which are not going to glorify God. But behind it is a positive thing that we're all made in the image of God. We all stand before God on the same terms. Where did that come from? And so we're exploring that and finding the positives in it. Do you see? And so when you find, you know, your non-Christian friends who work hard and love their families maybe and give to charity and serve in local community action groups, you know, you explore their worldview and you're thinking, well, those things are great. Those desires that people have to kind of live a good life, whatever they think that means, well, they come from God because he is the giver of love and, and family. He's the one who's come to serve in Jesus Christ. And so we're finding the connections as we explore. But then you have to go further. So having explored, we go thirdly to expose. And the third E is then exposing the limitations of that worldview. So Paul says to them, you even have a statue for an unknown God. And it's been said that the Athenians had more gods than you could shake a stick at, and then some besides, well, you couldn't even do that, because you didn't know who they were. They were just doing everything to cover all their bases. You know, you occasionally meet someone, even today, who says, you know, I'm going to church, but then I'm going to the mosque, then I'm going to the Hindu temple, then I'm going to the yoga class, just because I need to make sure I'm covering all my bases. And so Paul begins to expose the limitations in this worldview that they have. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship. So verse 24. How could the God who made everything be contained in a temple? How, how could he possibly need things 
from human beings, because that's what happens with these idols. You have to kind of look after them and, and sort of polish them and, and dust them. They get dusty. You have to make sure that they look, you know, and this, this, is meant to be the, this is meant to be your God, and you have to dust him and look after him. How could he possibly need things from people, Paul is saying, when he's the one who sustains everything, everyone else, and you're sitting there dusting him? What are you doing? Verse 29, you see, he says, if God made us... How ridiculous to conclude that we have to make him out of gold or silver or stone. So can you see what he's doing there? He's exposing the contradictions in the worldview that they have, that don't make any sense in what they believe. You know, the stuff that's good, you can celebrate, you're seeking God, he's saying, but the stuff that makes absolutely no sense at all. So, today secular North London person. You know, it's amazing that you want to work hard and, and, and take care of your family. But what's the point? Where's it all leading? Are you sure that your drivenness is making you and, and those around you happy here and now? And are you sure that when you look back on it, you'll be glad to have what you have, even as it slips away from you as you lose consciousness on your deathbed? Have you got an answer to that? What about the suffering and evil in the world? Can you make sense of that? Or is, it, is that just a problem for other people? What can you say that will get you through death? Those are the questions you see that just begin to expose the deficiencies, the problems with the worldview of many in our culture around us. Now, I'm not saying that we fire all those questions one after another. That's not an example conversation. <laughs> Do you see, that is the sort of thing Paul is doing here. He's exposing the idols. He's showing that they can't and they won't deliver what they promise. And they may destroy you in the process. But then having done that, having exposed, the fourth E is evangelise. He evangelizes them with the message of the one true God. So he says, let me tell you about the real God. God made everyone and everything. And that is a huge truth and really important for us to grasp as Christian people as well as to explain to others. Because, do you see what this means? It means if God made everyone and everything... The good news about Jesus is always relevant to every person. Do you see? Because we fear that, don't we? We fear that somehow Christianity has lost its relevance. We use that kind of language sometimes. But Christianity fundamentally, first of all, is a message about our creator. How can that not be relevant to every human being who has ever lived or will ever live? So look at verse... 26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. That's amazing, is it? Because it tells us that the people who live next door to us on our street and have the, the next desk to us in our office, they're not there by accident. God put them there. He made them. And they might deny that. They might laugh in your face or even in the end want to hurt you for saying that. 
But because God made everyone and everything, it's still true. Everyone and everything is both accountable to him and built to be in relationship with him. That's the point, isn't it? Can you see that verse 27? We're meant to be in relationship with him so that we might reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. That is, that is the point of what God has made us for, to know him. Verse 29, it makes us accountable. We are his offspring. We are accountable to him as our creator. And therefore he has a right to call us to account for how we live our lives. And so as Paul comes to the end of what he's saying in, the, in these verses, <clears throat> now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's really strong language, isn't it? Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Not just an invitation. You know, would you like to think about this? No, he commands. He commands. Well, how can he do that? Well, he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, he doesn't actually say his name, does he? It's funny, that. But, of course, he, he has been talking about Jesus in the marketplace. That's what made them drag him to the Areopagus. So they know who he means. He's already been talking about resurrection. It's this Jesus and his resurrection. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, you need to hear about. That is what Paul is saying. The logic is there's plenty of evidence Jesus rose from the dead. You know, Paul covers that at length, and the, the Bible in general covers that at length in other places. The fact that he rose from the dead is proof that one day all people will rise from the dead. When Jesus rose, a new creation began in him. And so he will be the one who will set the world right and bring that new creation in when he comes to judge the world. That's what gives him the right to do that because he's the first to rise from the dead so one day he will put us and he will put the whole creation right and so we have a choice as we hear that command do we bow the knee now and turn back to him now or or do we do it then if we wait till then though it will be too late that's the point isn't it the command is to turn now do it before it's too late. Well, very briefly as we finish then, what is the outcome? Verse 32, some sneer, some want to hear more. And it's been the same ever since. The gospel has this effect. Some believe and join and some continue to resist. That part is in God's hands, isn't it? But Luke has given us this account to give us confidence as we bring the gospel to a secular culture with different assumptions and values from the ones Christians hold. Be motivated by the glory of Jesus, he's saying, and then enter, explore, expose, evangelise, and leave the results to God. Let's pray now.
as we reflect for ourselves on our response to what we've heard. Heavenly Father, help us to hear the challenge but also the encouragement of these verses. The challenge to ensure that we have indeed heard that command to turn back to you. If that's something we're yet to do, might we do that even today? Or might we put in place clear steps that we need to take in order to know that things are right? Like those who said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And Father, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, who've turned, who, who are imperfect but living with Jesus as Lord and seeking to honour him, even though we do that imperfectly, we pray that you give us confidence in the gospel and in the, 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 the relevance, in the power of the gospel to speak to those around us in our culture, in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighbourhoods. And to, to listen hard to what people are saying about what makes them tick. To ask questions. And then to explore and to expose and to bring the good news about Jesus. Equip us to do that, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.